All right, so here's where we are. Jehoash, the grandson of Jehu, is king in Israel. That's on the left, the north. Israel is on the left. In some places, he's also called Joash, which is really confusing since we just had a King Joash down in Judah. So we're going to call this one in Israel Jehoash with the hoe in the middle. Um, Over in Judah, after a brief detour caused by Athaliah, the throne in Judah has returned to the heirs of King David and Amaziah is on the throne. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the book of Second Chronicles is all about the kings of Judah. It only mentions the kings of Israel when their paths cross. It covers roughly the same time period as the books of First and Second Kings, but the books of Kings bounce back and forth between stories of the king of Israel and stories of the king of Judah. So we end up having more detail about the kings of Judah than we do about the kings of Israel. The basic structure of this part of the Hebrew Bible is this. First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles tell the story of the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. That, that, that's when everything was called Israel. And then when the kingdom splits after Solomon's death, it splits into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, and the chronicler continues to follow the Davidic line while putting, well, you know, whoever it was that put first and second kings together tries to tell the story of both halves of the divided kingdom. And he obviously uses many of the same sources as the chronicler. I mean, you can read, sometimes you're reading word for word for word for word. They say exactly the same thing. But then sometimes the specifics conflict and are different. And you have to just pick the version you think makes the most sense. So my table of kings is intended to give you a quick visual reference when a name pops up as you are reading. So I, I, I have this same table in the study guide, but I, I usually post a little more information on each of the kings when I put it in the study guide. And you'll, the, this, this table is supposed to live in the reference materials, which you can find in the table of contents of your study guide. But for right now, while we're also, we're working with it and adding to it every week, I have left it in the main study guide as well, just to, you know, try to make this as easy on you as possible. I refer back to this all the time. So back to our kings. In Judah, when Amaziah comes to power, he continues to let the people make sacrifices and burn incense in the high places. It says he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. So he's sort of a lukewarm follower of Yahweh. He also wants revenge for his father's murder. And as soon as he feels like he's got a strong enough hold on the kingdom, he executes the officials who had murdered his father. But there's one big difference. He does not kill all their descendants. Now, you know, this is very unusual. Normally, when a new king comes to power or queen, they wipe out the entire male clan of the former king. But Amaziah does not do this. Why not? It says he restrains his hand 
because of the law of Moses. Fathers are not to be put to death over sons, and sons shall not be put to death over fathers, but each man shall be put to death for his own offense. I want you to remember this incident as a specific example of how the law of Moses was understood actually in this time and in this culture. The Israelites understood the law to say that sons are not to be punished for the sins of their fathers. And this action taken by Amaziah confirms it. So this whole, this whole concept is going to pop up again shortly. So make a big red note of this story and of the corresponding quote it's quoting from Deuteronomy 24.16. So you may remember from a few weeks ago that Amaziah's great-grandfather Jehoram had lost control over Edom, right down here in the southeast. Well, Amaziah decides to fix that situation, so he gathers together all the fighting men in Judah and also spends a boatload of money hiring 100,000 warriors from Israel to help him out. Then an unnamed prophet comes and tells Amaziah, what you are doing is wrong. Israel has turned away from Yahweh. You must not take these Israelite mercenaries into battle with you. Trust God to be powerful enough to overthrow your enemies without the help of the Israelites. And Amaziah says, but what about all that money I just spent to hire them? And the prophet says, the Lord can give you that and even more. So Amaziah actually sends the 100,000 mercenaries he's already paid back to Israel. And they are furious. You know that the retainer they're paid is nothing compared to the loot they've been expecting to get as a result of the war. Well, Amaziah takes what army he's got left and he attacks Edom and he does conquer them. And Edom once again becomes a vassal of Judah. And although he wins the battle, he almost gets captured doing it. He barely escapes with his life. And while he's busy at this, those mercenaries he fired raid all the towns of Judah they come across as they stomp back home. They take 3,000 people hostage and carry off a bunch of plunder. Not cool. Something else not cool is that when Amaziah returns from his war with Edom, he brings their gods with him. Remember, they worship Kamash among other gods, and this is a god that requires child sacrifice. It is an idol Yahweh particularly hates. Amaziah not only brings the Edomite idols back to Judah with him, he sets them up with other idols of his own and bows down to them and burns sacrifices to them. The Lord is furious. He sends another prophet to Amaziah who says, why do you consult the gods of the Edomites? Those idols couldn't even save the Edomites from you. Amaziah yells, stop. Who appointed you advisor to the king? You will be executed if you keep speaking. But the prophet persists saying, 
God will destroy you because you have done this and because you will not listen to me. It doesn't tell us what happens to that prophet. His integrity probably cost him his life. Now, King Amaziah is a relatively young man. He's 25 when he ascends to the throne, and he's as arrogant as they come. He's got a couple of notches on his belt now, and he figures he's big stuff. So he sends messengers to Jehoash, the king of Israel, and challenges him to battle. King Jehoash scorns Amaziah's message. He reminds Amaziah that he only exists because his great-grandfather begged for the king of Israel's daughter in marriage. The northern part of Israel, up through Phoenicia, is often called Lebanon in the Bible and is famous for its cedar trees. And in his reply, King Jehoash calls Amaziah and his ancestors thistles and calls himself and his ancestors cedars and says, the beast of Lebanon tramples on the thistle. Furthermore, he taunts, Sure, you struck down Edom, big deal, whoop-de-doo. You're getting carried away with your own press. Stay home and enjoy your win. Why provoke me just so Judah will fall and you with it? <laughs> well, then there's fighting words. Amaziah, of course, refuses to back off. So the two kings do battle at Beit Shemesh, which is right here. It's just west of Jerusalem, right there. As you know, topographically, Jerusalem is on a high spine of mountains that run north and south. Beit Shemesh is on what's called the Shephelah, which is the hilly area between the mountains and the coastal plains. Here's an aerial view of the archaeological excavations at Beit Shemesh. It gives you an idea of the terrain. You can see the forested hills sloping down to a big flat place. Perfect for a battle. It's interesting to me that the king of Israel, though, comes this far south, literally all the way down to where King Amaziah of Judah is. Maybe he doesn't want all that destruction and tromping around happening on his turf. After all, we have seen what angry armies do to the towns they pass. The battle is joined, and King Jehoash of Israel completely routs King Amaziah of Judah. The army of Judah flees, and King Amaziah runs for safety to his big walled city of Jerusalem. But King Jehoash pursues him. Jehoash is able to break through the walls of Jerusalem and actually tears down about 600 feet of the wall. He ransacks the temple and King Amaziah's treasuries and takes all the gold and silver, along with a bunch of hostages whom he drags back with him to Samaria. The chronicler says that from that time on, King Amaziah turns away from the Lord. Well, none of this goes over well with King Amaziah's people. He remains king of Judah for another 15 years, but in the end, his own people assassinate him. And they make his son, Azariah, king in his place. Meanwhile, in Israel, Jehoash dies, and his son, Jeroboam II, comes to power. 
We don't know a lot about him, except that he was as wicked as his namesake Jeroboam I was. He continues to promote idol worship in Israel, and the Israelites suffer terribly. In fact, they're in danger of being wiped out completely by their enemies. So the Lord is between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, Israelites are worshiping idols and have been for a very long time. But on the other hand, they've been attacked on all sides for years. Their borders are shrinking and they're in serious danger of being wiped out completely. What will the Lord do? Will he let Jeroboam and all of Israel be picked off piece by piece? Or will he strengthen Jeroboam, even though he's wicked, and give him victory in battle so as to save Israel? Which one do you think the Lord chooses? If you guessed on the side of mercy, you would be correct. The Lord has mercy on the Israelites in their suffering. He allows Jeroboam to free Israel from the oppression of the Arameans, so much so that Israel's boundaries grow to even include Damascus, the capital of Aram. My NIV study Bible notes say that during Jeroboam's reign, the Assyrians to the north of Aram attacked Aram multiple times. We have historical records of attacks on Damascus in 773 and 772 BCE. So the Arameans must have been weakened enough by these Assyrian attacks that they couldn't subsequently fight off Jeroboam. We don't have any dates or any other information on Jeroboam's attacks, so we don't really know. But it all fits together logically in this time frame. A prophet named Jonah from a little town northeast of Nazareth tells Jeroboam the Lord will make him successful. This is apparently the same Jonah as the one whose book has survived as part of the Hebrew Bible. Both the author of Kings and the author of the book of Jonah identify him as the son of Amittai. So even though some scholars dispute that they are the same person, I tend to think they probably are one and the same. So we'll look at his story now. Most folks have heard some version of this story of Jonah and the whale, but what is different is that you all now understand the historical context of the story. It will sound different to you this time. The book of Jonah opens with the Lord saying, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness is in my face. Now y'all know what Nineveh is. It's the capital of the empire of Assyria. God wants Jonah who lives in a little town near Nazareth to go preach bad news and destruction to this big city in enemy territory. Now this seems like a good time to get our bearings as to just how big of a deal Assyria is. Here's another map of the same region, but with a little more detail. Here's Judah and Israel. The red strip here, that's Phoenicia, where Jezebel and Athaliah were from. And this black triangle is Aram, which nowadays, as you know, is called Syria. Without the A, Syria, not Assyria. 
We call it by the name used in the Bible, Aram. Its capital has always been Damascus and actually still is Damascus. This big green blob overrunning the whole region is Assyria with an A. Its capital is Nineveh, which in modern days is near Mosul in northern Iraq. Notice that there is a darker green blob and a lighter green blob. The darker green blob is what Assyria looks like at this point in our story. It's still huge, and it's putting a great deal of pressure on, Ar on Aram, the Black Triangle. But over the next several classes, we'll watch Assyria expand its borders to all of the light green area as well. These are scary times for Israel and Judah. And Jonah's like, oh, heck no, no way. Now think about this a second. Jonah's book has survived. Unlike most other prophets of this time, he's mentioned by name in the account of Second Kings, unlike many other prophets who are just called, quote, man of God or a prophet. So I wonder if Jonah is a bigger deal of a prophet in his time. Maybe he has his own school of prophets like Elisha and Elijah did. He's not destitute. We see later in the story, he's got money enough to travel. I wonder if his school is the one that later writes down and preserves his story. And I wonder if when Jonah told them what the Lord said, I wonder if those other prophets in his community tried to push him into going to Nineveh. I think somehow Jonah is feeling forced into this by someone, be it the other prophets or the Lord, because he doesn't just stay home and keep his mouth shut. Apparently, that's not an option. Instead, Jonah heads off to the nearest seaport and hops a ship going as far away from Nineveh as he can get. Well, of course, the Lord knows exactly where Jonah is. King David was right when he said in Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are also there. The Lord intends Jonah to speak to the city of Nineveh. And it says the Lord sends a violent storm that threatens to break up the ship. The sailors start throwing all the cargo overboard to lighten it up. Everyone is praying to their gods. That is all except Jonah. Jonah is fast asleep below decks. The captain wakes him up and says, pray, man, pray. The sailors realize this is not just any old storm. It's probably out of season and it's far more violent than it should be. They recognize it as an act of a god. So they cast lots to find out who on board has made a god angry. And of course, the lot falls on Jonah. They corner Jonah and say, who are you and what have you done? And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven. Now, this is a very unusual name for God. Yahweh, the God of heaven. Usually it just says Yahweh. This phrase, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has only been used twice so far in the whole Hebrew Bible, once by Abraham back in Genesis 24 and once in the Psalms. But 
We see this phrase used a lot more in some of the books written much later. And this is one of many reasons scholars think the book of Jonah was written down long after the coming cataclysm. Anyway, Jonah says, my God is the one who made both sea and land, and I am running from him, which is interesting. Think about it a second. Jonah has succumbed to the cultural belief of the time that gods are tied to particular regions. They're tied to the land. When we know that Yahweh is the first God who has proven to the Israelites, to the, all these people, that he is definitely not bounded by national territories. Well, this terrifies the sailors. The sea is getting rougher and rougher, and they cry out to Jonah, what must we do to make the sea calm down? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. I know it is my fault this calamity has overcome you. Well, the sailors don't want to do that. They don't want to drown him. So they try to row to land. But you can see that that's probably pretty hopeless at this point. And the storm grows wilder and wilder. Finally, the desperate sailors cry out, you, Yahweh, do whatever you desire. But just in case this is a big mistake, please do not hold us accountable for taking the life of an innocent man. And with that, they pick Jonah up and throw him overboard. And immediately, the raging sea grows calm. The sailors are in awe of Jonah's God. And they offer a sacrifice to Yahweh and make vows to him. Meanwhile, the Lord sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Hebrew here does not say whale or monster or anything like that. It is two very ordinary words. The word for great big and the word for fish. So at this point, you as the hearer of the story might begin to wonder if this story is intended to be taken literally or not. Here in chapter two, a long poem is inserted as Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. It is a gorgeous prayer, so eloquent. But I want you to notice one thing. It's in the past tense. It's not written as Jonah speaking from the mouth or belly of the fish. In fact, Scholars believe this prayer is a psalm all on its own and was inserted here by whomever wrote this story down later. Now, when I say past tense, um, those who are Hebrew scholars will, you know, argue with me about how Hebrew does time and, and, you know, it doesn't actually have a past tense, but this prayer is translated in the past tense. So that's kind of interesting. It's like everything in this story is going along, present time, present time. It's all happening. And then we have this big prayer in the past tense. It, it does talk about being flung into the sea with waves crashing over him, going down to the roots of the mountains and to the pit, which is a common euphemism for Sheol that people used to refer to the place of the dead. But it is exactly the same type of wording used in other Psalms, such as Psalm 86, 107, 139, lots of others. 
But even if it is lifted from some other source, be sure to go back and read this prayer in Jonah 2. It is stunningly beautiful poetry. After the prayer, the story picks up again. After three days and three nights, the Lord commands the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. Again, the physics are something to consider if you want to take this story literally. At this point, the Lord repeats to Jonah quite calmly, like a mother speaking to a child just coming out of time out, go to the great city of Nineveh and say what I told you to say. Well, this time Jonah doesn't argue. We don't know quite where the fish deposited him, but he goes straight to Nineveh. It would have taken him weeks to get there. And Nineveh itself, the story says, is so large, it takes three days just to walk across the city. The moment Jonah enters the city, he starts preaching, saying, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, you all know now that the number 40 in the Bible simply means a lot. We saw it a week or two ago when it was used to describe a lot of boys. In the case of Noah, it meant a lot of time. So basically, the Lord has told Jonah to say, someday, a long time from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. I mean, no wonder he didn't want to go. A long time from now, something bad will happen. That's not exactly a call to action that Jonah thinks is going to get any traction at all. But to Jonah's consternation, the Ninevite people actually listened to him. I mean, not even Israelites listen to prophets. And here are people living in the capital of a vast and powerful pagan nation actually listening to a solo prophet from an enemy land. This is nuts. The Ninevites start fasting, all of them. Word even reaches the king, and he himself dresses in sackcloth and throws ashes all over his body and issues this decree. No person, not even any of your flocks, may eat or drink anything. Every man and every beast must be covered in sackcloth. Everyone must give up their wicked ways and their violence and must call urgently on Elohim. Notice that this is not the name of Yahweh, which is used elsewhere in the story, even in the part about the sailors. Here, the word is Elohim, which is just the common word in this culture for gods. It is often used in the Hebrew Bible to refer to Yahweh, but it is not the actual name Yahweh. And you remember early, early, early on in one of the very first lessons, I, I, one of our earliest tools that we put in our backpack was to pay attention to the names used for God because those help us unlock the story. The king says, who knows? God may yet have compassion and turn from his fierce anger and we will not perish. And God hears their prayers. God sees that the people actually do turn from their wicked ways and he does not bring on them the destruction Jonah prophesied. Jonah, of course, feels like he's been made to look like a complete and utter fool. He is so furious with God. He says, I told you that's what would happen, Lord. 
And, and here he's using the name Yahweh. That's why I ran away in the first place. I know you are gracious and compassionate and patient and abounding in kindness, a God who is moved to pity and relents from causing distress. I am so mad at you. I'd rather die than keep living like this. And God says, be sure you do your very best at being angry. That's literally what the Hebrew means here. God sounds exactly like the mother of a toddler having a temper tantrum. So Jonah stomps out of the city and makes a shelter from the hot sun and watches to see if the Lord will change his mind and destroy Nineveh after all. And he sits. And he waits. And he waits some more. And after a while, the Lord causes a shade plant to grow up over his shelter to make him a little more comfortable while he's having his temper tantrum. And Jonah really appreciates the extra shade, but he's still mad at God and he's still waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed. When God sees Jonah has not had a change of heart, even after God's tender care for him, God sends a worm to chew up that shade plant. And then he sends a scorching east wind that makes mincemeat out of Jonah's shelter. But Jonah is still so mad at God, he doesn't care. He just says, whatever, I still want to die. And God says, well, be sure you do your very best being angry over the shade plant. And Jonah says, I am, I am angry enough to die. And God says, Jonah, you have cared more about this stupid shade plant that you didn't even plant or tend than you have cared about Nineveh, a city of more than 120,000 people and who knows how many animals. Yes, these people don't know their right hand from their left, but should I not have compassion for them? And the book of Jonah ends right there. God asks the big question, should I not have compassion on this city of pagans? We'll talk about this in our breakout rooms today. All right, welcome back. Be sure to turn your mics back on so we can talk to each other. But, uh, this is one of my favorite stories. I love this story. <laughs> And, and, and the, we're going to skip right to the questions. So, um, and the first question was about, is there ever any evidence in the story that the pagan Ninevites ever confessed the name of Yahweh, like the sailors did in the first part of the story? And the answer is no, they did not. They, uh, in the actual Hebrew, they cry out to Elohim and it is Elohim who sees they've turned from evil and it is Elohim who relents. Then in, you know, the rest of the story, you know, especially in the, the uh, last chapter, Jonah flips back and forth between Yahweh, Elohim and Yahweh and just Elohim. I mean, just like in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, those terms, Lord and the Lord God, get used frequently for Yahweh. But in this story, there's a really um, interesting 
break between the first part of the story where Yahweh is used and that middle part about the Ninevites where Elohim only is used. So the question was, do you think that is an accident? What did y'all think? I see a lot of heads going no. (laughs) I don't think so either. I mean, that's why we go to the trouble to look for these kind of markers in the study. But it's okay if you think that's an accident. It's okay if you think that's a coincidence. What we're doing here is we're we're, um, digging into the story in a different way. And I mean... People, like I said, people are all over the map about what they believe about Jonah and the whale. So I'm not here to force everybody to sit in, in the same pew. Well, our group um, said that explained a lot about Jonah's tantrum because they weren't calling him by the right name. He was upset that God was still listening to them. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, Jonah totally gets that these people, and that's why I think God, it says at the end, God says, I know Jonah. I know they don't know their right hand from their left. I think that's what he's talking about is that they don't, they don't know, you know? Um, And, and so what, what did that? uh, Well, question three was um, overall, as you're talking about that, do you think that this story is about Jonah and being called as a prophet and not going and then going, which is how I had always heard this story done? Or could it be all about God and the pagan nation? We were. Also- it seems like it seems like this is um, a story being told to Israel and Judah that, um, you know, you keep chasing after all these pagan gods and, and I showed mercy on this gigantic pagan empire because the people repented and listened to me. And if you do that, I'm here and I will have mercy on you as well. How much more so, right? If you do that, how much more so will I respond to you? That kind of gets to that question that was in there was, who do you really think this story was directed to? Yeah. We were wondering also if there uh, often, I think as believers or as you know, people who view ourselves as chosen by God, there in our mind, there's a certain way that you, you know, it's like if you ha- if you didn't do it this way or you didn't pray the prayer this way with this words with this understanding that you know, it won't work or that God won't hear you or you know whatever the situation may be. So I took it as um, yes, intentional, and I'm wondering if it's also intentional just on the part of God's ways are not our ways. That He, I, I know that you've continuously told reminded us that there there has to be a, a turning towards. But then God does it. He makes a way. And so it is really interesting that I think we could be sticklers and say, well, you didn't use this name and you didn't do it this way. say in Jesus name. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I I love that. That was such a good point. Yeah. Sorry, my camera isn't hooked to my computer. That's okay. I know what you look like. And I'm thrilled to death to hear your voice back, Shirley. Thank you. It's so good to be here. <laughs> so, I also want. I also wonder. This, 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 this was a lot to unpack for me. So, 
I also wonder if it wasn't God showing even back in the Old Testament about Jesus's teaching about all the people, about, you know, going to all the nations. And, you know, it was even a, a foreshadowing to Jesus saying, no, pagans, you know, they can hear the word too. Yeah. All means all. Yeah, all means all. And this is going to blow your mind, but there is a place in the New Testament where um, some of the people who try to trip Jesus up, you know, um, say, well, prove that you're the son of God and you're going to, you know, raise yourself and, you know, this, you're going to do all this in three days or whatever, you know, they're doing, I don't remember the specifics, but it's one of those prove it moments. And Jesus says, you know what? The only sign that will be given to this generation is the sign of Jonah. Mind blown, right? Yeah, yeah Jonah was a pre, uh, pre-shadowing of, of Jesus. The, the time in the whale... We certainly take it that way, the three days and three nights kind of thing, although Jesus didn't do three nights, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but, but still, you know, people puzzle over that, that verse in the New Testament about, you know, the only sign this generation will be given is the sign of Jonah because they don't understand that he's referring to exactly what we're talking about today, about how 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 God comes to the people who are willing to humble their hearts and that it's not about how important you are or who you are or how you do it or what you call him even apparently, right? At least in this story. And so when the, 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 I I wish, I wish I had put that in your study guide. I'd have to look up the reference for you, but, but when the people in the new Testament are, are, are trying to force Jesus into that legal box. Jesus says no, because that's not how God sees the world. That's not how God sees people. You've already had all the signs you're going to get that I'm the Messiah. That's, I mean, that gives me chills, right? What else did y'all talk about? Well, one one reason Jonah's probably very angry is because, you know, well, he would consider these people like dogs, you know, less than human, maybe. That's the way the Israelites thought of. And yet God mentions the animals, too. Talk to me about the animals. What? Why did the animals have to fast? Why did the animals have to wear sackcloth? I think that is hilarious detail in this story. What's your theory on the animals? Well, you know, I, I think I think we have to go to sort of the end of the story um, where God basically says to Jonah, you know, you're more upset about this plant than you are about all of the people in the city and including the animals in, in this part of the story is basically saying God cares about all living things. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, obviously you're not going to have animals dressed in sackcloth and you're not going to fast. <laughs> your, I thought, I thought the, it meant animals in your cattle because and they were doing wicked things. We need to have a Jonah pageant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but the idea that, that the animals were included as part of the, the promise of rescue in essence, and the statement of, of Yahweh at the end that, you know, why wouldn't I show mercy? Um, it, it um, you know, God cares about all of creation. Which echoes back not only to Genesis, but to the Noah flood, right? And after that, and the rainbow whole thing. And it's just all the way well, through. God cares about life. That's why when people ask me, do do- dogs and say dogs can't go to heaven i'm like what what bible did you read you know <laughs> you know i was telling the others in the the class in the breakout session that um we had a youth pastor that got mad at me because i told ria that she would see her dog that had recently died oh, in heaven. And he just, and I said, let me prove it to you. I'll send you an email with verses. And I, and this, that was one of the verses I put in there is that, you know, the animals had to fast and because our church that we were going to in Colorado was very literal, that the Bible was the absolutely infallible word for word, God's words. And uh, he's like, they did have to fast. I have to think about this. <laughs> That goes back to Marlene's point that, that if this story is directed to the Israelites, God is saying, you only have to even turn back to me like a dumb animal, just anything. I'll take anything. (laughs) I think every time I've ever heard this story, probably taught the story, um, heard sermons about the story we always hear it being about obedience to god and from the jonah point of view exactly and nobody ever until now has said but why is the story here and who is the story impacting and you know you always just hear about jonah and how if God's called you to do something, you shouldn't rebel and, you know, all this stuff. But it's not about that at all. And it, I never knew that until I'm 61 years old and you just taught me something new. I love it. Well, and it also kind of puts that whale in its place in the story. It's just a detail. It's not the point, you know. Um, <laughs> right. um, and, and that's what... That's why um, we've spent a lot of, you know, as we've gone through this, I've highlighted to you um, how to actually look at the structure of a story, look at the words that are used, look for these textual uh, clues to help you focus on what is the point of a story. And part of that is just knowing this history. You know, y'all knew, even if I had told the story to you in the traditional way, you still would have got more out of it this time because you know who the heck Assyria is. <laughs> so, so Gail, um, with, with the, the, um, the, the 
I don't know if rationale is the right word, but with the understanding that this was written down likely by Jonah's school um, much later than the facts. Do you think that the point of them writing this story down was to basically tell, um, I guess it would have been Judah. Israel. This is Israel. This is Israel. To tell Israel, Israel was already in captivity to tell them, this is why you didn't even listen as much as Nineveh did. Yes. And Israel gets taken into captivity by Assyria. Yeah. That they listened to me more than you did. And this is why you fell. So it's entirely possible that this story was written down and crafted in this way to speak to not not only just Jonah's original story to the people in Israel. His, you know, I feel sure that he spoke to the people in Israel and told them this story. But even if he didn't, you're absolutely right. This story would have been crafted in this way to help them make sense of what happened to them. And it's coming soon. We're, we're getting really close to that happening. The cataclysm. Yeah, yeah, we are. I'm, I work a week or two ahead, you know, in doing my research and writing these for you. And, and um, I, I, I worked this week on, on the lesson where I'm going to have to tell you what happens. <laughs> Because it just becomes front and center really, really quickly. Um, so it's tragic, but this is a, a really important story. And it's kind of weird that this one little bizarro story gets saved. It's not like any other of the prophets at all. It doesn't follow the template that we looked at before. It doesn't have the same themes. It's like its own little thing. I thought it was interesting too. I don't recall ever really focusing on Jonah's after the aftermath of you know, him sitting there. It's and not pretty. <laughs> yeah, I. But I was I was grateful to and and humbled to be able to relate right and to have you know have had those moments. I hope that the Lord will continue to work that out of me. But where I'm finger wagging, or I'm you know I'm looking at someone and not understanding the response or not being gracious or standing in judgment going, you're not doing it right. You know? So it, it is, it was fascinating and humbling to watch him sit there and pout and judge <laughs> and then have to really take a look at myself and go, I, I can see, I can definitely see moments and larger moments and smaller moments of that still in me. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to be a Jonah in that moment. It's a very human story. I mean, we have all experienced parts of this, right, in our hearts. Yeah, yeah I have to confess that that there are people right now that I just would really love to see smitten. <laughs> Good thing you're not God. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's not in my territory to say anything about that. But yeah. I, I mean, I can totally identify with Jonah on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I went, was it Erica that was saying about not being a Jonah in that moment? And, you know, I... That was Ellen, yeah. 
Oh, it was Ellen. I, was, I couldn't remember which one said it. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, I was there last week. Any of, the, any of you that are friends with me on Facebook probably saw the post I made that said, I feel like I'm in over my head with, you know, the cry face with my avatar. Because that's where I was. I was where Jonah was last week. Or actually, I think it was just three or four days ago. And I tell you what, my friends loved on me, something fierce, but it's hard sometimes when you're in that, that overwhelmed state of being to remember that God is still there. You're not, he's not the one who's moved, you have, you know, you got to get your focus back where your focus needs to be. And, um, you know, I think the story of Jonah is there to teach us a lot of things. And we were saying in our group, it, it, it was like God was being the parent and getting their attention. And, you know, it's that now have I got your attention moment that we have with our kids when, you know, we keep telling them not to do something and they're going to get hurt and then they get hurt. And you're like, see, I, that's what I told you was going to happen. Have I got your attention yet? And I think that's kind of why this story is there. Because he didn't want just Israel to get that or just Judah to get that. He wants all of us to get that. Yeah. He wants us all to know that he's there. And it doesn't matter if you're on a boat or you're in a fish or... <laughs> you're in Nineveh or you are Nineveh or you're an animal or whatever God is there yeah but not only that God doesn't care that you call him by the right name I mean that, that's what kind of you know I've been really kind of munching on that you know mulling it over it's just I mean we have these other religions we have um Islam we have obviously Jewish faith we have Christians we have other um, religions that, like Buddhism, that doesn't really have a particular one God. Yes. And I don't think God cares. I think God really just cares about having a relationship and whether you understand a relationship as Allah or Elohim or God or whatever. I think that's all that God cares about. I, I think the rest of it is, is, it's it's cultural entrappings maybe yes and i think that there i think that yahweh is real what what we call yahweh is very real and very different from the own gods we set up for ourselves our pride our lust our you know desire for glory those are idols that's what idols are that's what they've always been right um, they're about us having control but whenever there is a humble heart seeking whatever word they know is God, this story and many others say that God responds. Yeah. And we're going to see that um, as we go through the rest of the Bible. We, we will point these out. This is um, this one really lays it out there for you in plain in plain sight but it's this is not the only place that god 
is willing to answer. I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, earlier, one of the, our earlier study Bible studies, and I can't remember who it was, but the point of it was that God did not care that this particular individual turned or went to worship other idols. And it just reminded me about when we were talking about question six, it reminded me of that story it was earlier in the Bible studies where essentially God said, I know your heart and it's okay to go to worship them. Oh what, yeah. He was, it was, was a man. It was a man. I don't remember the whole thing, but it was a man. It was when, it was when Naaman got healed of leprosy and yes. And he said, I'm going to have to go back and serve my king. And my and part of my job is to help the king into the temple of the idol so he can worship the idol. And when I do that, I have to help the king get down and I have to kneel. And I, he said, but, but, but do you think God will understand that I'm not worshiping that idol? And the answer was... Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Cause I was trying to figure out, I knew that there was something yep. that reminded me of that story because at the end of the day, I do the question number six was he doesn't, it, he said the people call him or what the response to him was like, what is important to God is I, I agree with you, our heart and our posture of humility, which is similar to that previous story. So I, you know, when people ask me, well, is such and such religion, you know, God, or is such and such religion idols or whatever, I'm like, you know what, I am not actually in the position to judge that. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> and, like you know, that, that, that I do know for a fact, there are people who know God all over this world who may never know the name that I call him by, but they know him. That, that, that takes me to um, various things that I read, including some of C.S. Lewis's work. Um, you know, so many of us Christians have been raised that, you know, if you don't get things right before you take that last breath, if you have not said the sinner's prayer, if you have not, you know, in Jesus name, amen that that's it. Once you've taken your last breath, that's it. Hell forever. No, no options. When there are more and more authors I've been reading who basically look at it more from the perspective of we are in this life, we are seeking the face of God. We are seeking relationship, whatever that appears you know, whatever is in our culture or in, you know, our teaching, and our understanding, yeah, that we are looking always for God. And that after we die, when we see God, as Paul says, face to face, that for so many people, it's going to be, yes, you are exactly who I was worshiping. You are exactly who I was looking for all along. Now, finally, I see you. Not everything is God. Right. God is in everything. Yeah, the, the, there's, there will be a, for those who have been truly seeking, I mean, obviously there are those who, who, you know, their God is themselves. But 
for those who are truly seeking, even if they never hear the name of Jesus, they will recognize who they were seeking yes. when they see God. Yes, exactly. So now that we've completely covered all heresy and are, have lost <laughs> you know, half, the, half the Christian world here, <laughs> you're brave souls and you're asking wonderful questions and you're thinking, stretching thoughts. These are like outside of our comfort boundaries. And, um, but this is what makes us grow. And so I'm going to call this the end of class today. And may you see God in animals and people in places you never expected this week. I love you all. Bye-bye.